When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. The counteroffensive that Ukraine has put in place is now underway. And this is the miscalculation that Vladimir Putin has made. Yeah, it was one thing to stop the Russians. It's another thing to push them back. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. I think we're going to hold the house. I think we're going to expand our membership. You're going to see the single most important thing that changes America is we're going to cure cancer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Russia is on the run in Ukraine. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as Ukraine's forces continue their counteroffensive with the biggest battlefield victory now since March. We'll talk more about what is unfolding and how the U.S. can help with Matthew Kranick, acting director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Democrats push back on Joe Manchin's energy permitting bill. It's getting complicated as lawmakers get back in the bubble. But is it too late to make any changes? House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer speaks to Bloomberg about it. And we'll have the latest from Capitol Hill with analysis from our panel. Bloomberg Politics contributors Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are with us for the hour. The counteroffensive in Ukraine that we told you about last week continues at a clip that is surprising a lot of military experts. 200 days into the war, the headline on the terminal is Russian defenses crumble as Ukraine takes key territory. Things are changing. Ukraine's top commander says they've recovered over 1,100 square miles now of territory since the start of September. Today is the 12th, and that represents the biggest victory for Ukraine since they managed to push Russian troops out of Kyiv in March. Ukraine's chief diplomatic advisor speaking today with Bloomberg, Ihor Shovkwa, about what's driving this progress. Here he is. Due to the strength of the Ukrainian armed forces, due to the mastery of Ukrainian soldiers, but this is also due, right, you are, uh, to the uh, heavy weaponry Ukraine started to receive uh, uh, for the last uh, practically weeks or months. This is what we didn't have in the beginning of the war. This is what we didn't have, unfortunately, before the war. Right now, we are starting to have it. But definitely, if you're asking me whether it is enough, definitely not. 
definitely not enough. But it is what has brought them this far. Not only their own grit, their own willingness to fight in Ukraine, but the hardware that we are sending. And to his point, it's gotten to be a lot more effective recently. You had another headline, though. Russia strikes power plants vowing to counter Ukraine's advance. This is what we're getting in return here. They hit power plants with precision missiles causing blackouts across the northeast of the country. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre on Air Force One on their way to Boston today speaking to that side of the story. We condemn Russia's airstrikes on Ukraine's critical infrastructure, uh, to your question, leaving people in several cities without power and clean water. We will continue to support Ukraine as it defends itself and hold Russia accountable for its war uh, against Ukraine. And there are worries, as we heard uh, earlier today on Bloomberg from Leon Panetta about exactly you know, what a cornered Vladimir Putin is capable of. And we don't necessarily want to use our imagination. You don't really need to with some of the threats that have been made. That's where we begin our conversation today with Matthew Kranig, Deputy Director, Acting Director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. Matthew, it's great to have you with us. Uh, do you agree with uh, the, the diplomatic advisor, Shovko, we just heard from uh, on what's actually driving this advance right now? There are stories about Russia, actually Russian troops dropping their rifles and running, as President Zelensky said, the Russians are panicking. Is that how you see it? Yes, I think there are a number of factors driving this Ukrainian counteroffensive. One is the better uh, weapons the United States has provided in recent weeks. Uh, another big one is just morale. The Ukrainians are fighting to defend their homeland, to yeah. defend their, their neighborhoods. Uh, the Russians are you know, being forced into this by Vladimir Putin. And so I think that difference in morale is, is also making a huge difference. That was already in place, though, of course, and this has been going on for six months. What is it now that seems to be, if if not only the, the fact that they've got more capable hardware to make a breakthrough six months in like this? Or does it speak more, Matthew, to the state of the of the Russian military? Well, it is both. But on, on the Russian side, you've had a number of generals uh, killed um, in, in the field. Uh, you know, they have a top down style military where low level officers don't take initiative. So the generals have to go out in the field, but that means they're getting killed in fairly large numbers. So you have some of these young Russian troops without um, leadership, low morale. Uh, they're not getting um, resupplied because of some of the Ukrainian attacks uh, behind the lines. So they're uh, literally so, uh, turning uh, and uh, running. Uh, that's right. That's right. Uh, as a colleague of mine tweeted um, recently at the beginning of this conflict, Zelensky said, I don't need a ride. I need ammunition. Yeah. You know, now the Russians are essentially saying the, the opposite. They, a lot of them are looking for a ride out. They're looking for a ride out, Matthew. That's quite a line uh, to consider where we are after this much time. Uh, the, 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 the message we just heard from, from Ihor Shovko was we need a lot more. Are we prepared with the, the most recent drawdowns that you've seen to continue this flow of weapons, or does it need to increase? I think it should increase in several ways. I think the United States has um, eventually provided um, uh, weapons the Ukrainians need, but it's been a little bit slow. And I think the two things we should be providing now that we really haven't yet are yep. so-called attack missiles. Um, so the uh, HIMARS missiles, that we've uh, rockets that we've provided, have a range of about 50 miles. Uh, Attackums have a range of about 200 miles. That would allow the Ukrainians to strike deeper into Russian-held uh, Ukrainian territory. Uh, and then second is uh, air defenses, to be able to shoot down the kind of 
uh, Russian uh, missiles that you talked about at the start of your show that are attacking Ukrainian power plants right. uh, and shoot down Russian planes. So I, I think those are two things we could provide that would really help the Ukrainians. Would that cross the line into so-called offensive weaponry, the line that the Biden administration has, has been afraid to cross? Well, the Biden administration has already, uh, you know, at the beginning of this war, they were uh, very cautious. Slowly, they've been willing to provide more and more weaponry. And I think the uh, lesson for me is that uh, we were probably too cautious about uh, worries about Russian escalation. And, and so I do think we could provide things like uh, attackums without worry about major uh, Russian uh, Russian escalation. It doesn't. It, it wouldn't be used, in other words, to attack Russian territory. That that's sort of the line that that we've been hearing about in Washington. Are those capable of going further into Russia to create enough of a of an issue that that would be seen as escalatory? Well, uh, you know, even the the HIMARS, the, depending on where they're located, could sure. strike into um, Russian territory. And and so yes, there is more of a risk, I guess, that the Ukrainians could uh, be tempted to strike deeper. Um, into Russia, but they would also give the Ukrainians to strike into uh, Crimea, uh, other parts of the Donbass that they can't currently uh, can't currently hit. Well, I'll tell you what, Matthew. I see the headline on the terminal today: Ukraine's success stir once unthinkable hope of beating Russia. President Zelensky has said he wants this war to be done by the end of the year. Is this starting to come together, or is this, you know, a brief period of time where they're they're winning the battle but still could lose the war? I think it is a remarkable turning point. Just a couple of weeks ago, people were saying the battle lines are static. The Ukrainians are going to have to give up territory if they want peace. Now we see that that's not true. The Ukrainians are turning the tide. Um, I I hate to be a pessimist, but I think that um, it's going to be difficult for the Ukrainians to uh, repeat the kind of rapid advances um, they made this weekend. I do suspect that uh, some of the places where the Russians are more dug in, like Crimea, like um, the eastern parts of the Donbass, going to be harder for the ukrainians to push them out so unfortunately i think this conflict could content uh, continue well into next year we should note this progress has been in the kharkiv region uh certainly the case where they were moving the most uh over the weekend and on sunday um i know you're not an energy analyst matthew but we've seen 90 days or more at this point of falling gas prices crude oil prices have also been lower and the market seems to be reading into this as good news is the market getting a little ahead of itself uh, I, th- I think it may be getting um, a little bit ahead of itself. If they're betting that this war is going to be over soon, I think that's um, a, a little bit optimistic. Uh, I think that momentum is on the Ukrainian side now, uh, that the Russians are demoralized and that matters. Um, but there's still um, a lot of territory that the Russians are holding in Ukraine. It's going to be difficult for the Ukrainians to push them out of all of it. And Zelensky says that's the goal, to, to take all yeah. of it back, including uh, Crimea. Our ambassador to Ukraine, the U.S. Ambassador Bridget Brink, accused Russia in a tweet of sending missiles to attempt to destroy critical civilian infrastructure. As we know, they were firing at power plants and they did cause blackouts. If Vladimir Putin continues to not only lose ground, but lose uh, the public relations war, he's hearing about this in Russia now in a way that he did not want to be, of course. People are hearing about this. Uh, does that mean more attacks on civilians, on infrastructure, more of what we saw yesterday? Well, I think for Putin, desperate times call for desperate measures. And um, really, since the first lightning strike on Kiev uh, failed, uh, he has been turning to targeting um, innocent civilians. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think this strike on a power plant is another example of that. And I do worry um, about further escalation. Uh, if Ukrainians continue to win, does Putin see using chemical, biological, or even nuclear right. weapons to try to save defeat, uh, save off defeat, more attractive to him than uh, losing in a humiliating fashion? The threat has already been made. So a cornered Vladimir Putin is what obviously worries you the most, Matthew. I don't know that it worries me the most, but it does worry me. Russia has this kind of scary escalate to de-escalate nuclear strategy that essentially they say to avoid losing a war, uh, they would use nuclear weapons, relatively low-yield battlefield nuclear weapons, maybe one, two, three at a time to try to scare off the adversary. Uh, And so this is part of their doctrine. They have the nuclear weapons to do that. And um, so I've talked to colleagues in uh, the Biden administration who say that this is a top priority of theirs now. How do you deter Putin from using uh, these WMD as the Ukrainian counteroffensive continues to succeed? You do not believe that the Russian military is on the verge of collapse? I I wish I could say that. I I, I think that the Ukrainians uh, have the momentum. They'll likely take back more territory. But I I think it's hard for me to imagine the Russian military completely collapsing in in Ukraine uh, 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 in, in the short term. Appreciate your insights. Matthew Kranig, Deputy Director, Acting Director, I should say, of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council. That gets us started on the fastest hour. A lot happened over the weekend. But of course, as Matthew suggests, it may not continue for long. And as we'll discuss ahead with our panel, Vladimir Putin could change the game in any number of ways. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano on the way in next. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The strides Ukraine is making in its counteroffensive are impressive, as I mentioned, stunning even a lot of military experts. And some worry, though, that the more ground they take, the faster this goes, the more dangerous it could make the situation with regard to Vladimir Putin, who's going to want to respond at some point here. Uh, and make a point among those expressing that worry today on Bloomberg, uh, none other than the former Secretary of Defense, former CIA Director Leon Panetta. He was on Balance of Power with David Weston. Listen. It's dangerous because Putin, if he's boxed in, uh, obviously uh, will have to strike back. Uh, There are Russians who are criticizing him now in Moscow uh, because of this retreat that's taken place. Uh, And the real issue is whether Putin now strikes back. He already has uh, hit back on the infrastructure, uh, whether he resorts to uh, to more, uh, you know, including the possibility of battlefield nuclear. uh, All of that uh, creates a dangerous moment here. Battlefield nuclear retreat. Another word he used there. And of course, boxed in as Vladimir Putin may well feel today as we assembled our panel for their take Jeannie Shanzano is here, and Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Rick, does that make you feel uneasy, the idea that Vladimir Putin's being made fun of? Is that not the most dangerous scenario you can come up with? Well, you know, look, I don't know how much is being made fun of or just losing, right? I mean, Vladimir Putin has, this has been a disaster for him. This is not at all what he had planned. Uh, And it's not been that way for six months. So with all due respect to these experts, um, everyone has had it wrong all along. I I know very few people who have said, oh, no, this is the way that the the Ukrainians are going to be able to not just 
hold their own territory, but regain regain territory along the way. So I, I, if if there's one person who I wouldn't want to piss off, it's Zelensky, not Putin. I mean, uh, like that guy's yeah. he's fighting for his life. He's he's showing incredible resolve, and he is right now the difference maker in liberal democracies around the world and their acceptability in the eyes of so many people. And if I had to draw a contrast as to who I am worried about, I'm more worried about making sure Zelensky has what he needs to mm-hmm. do the job he does, which has been underestimated by the entire Western world all along the way. So let's give him the weapons he wants. Let's give him the rope and let's and let's keep our focus on Putin and make sure he, he if he does any of these crazy things, uh, then then he's properly punished in the process. How do you do that, Genie? If we're talking about a bio uh, weapons attack or or battlefield nuclear to the extent that Leon Panetta is talking about here, you know things get get pretty scary the more desperate he gets. They do. And and I think Matt and you were right in that discussion you had previously about being cautious. You know, uh, Russia already responded in a way it hadn't in the last seven months with this attack on critical infrastructure. It left Kharkiv in a total blackout 250 miles from north to south with no electricity. And that may just be the beginning, as you mentioned, Mm. of some of the reaction Putin has to being cornered like this. And, you know, you add on to that what what President Zelensky has been saying. His goal is complete deoccupation, including the gains made since 2014. So you've got to imagine how Vladimir Putin hears that. And he says we have 90 days to solve 30 years of Ukrainian independence. Wow. So they have a lot on their shoulders. Even military folks are saying as far as the Ukrainian soldiers are concerned, you know, there is a real concern that they are spread too thin at some point with everything they've got on their plate. And there is some kind of burnout at some point. So the the reality is this is still a hard fought battle and Putin may yet come back really hard. Rick, we talk so much about hardware in terms of what Ukraine is getting from the U.S. and what it needs. How about in terms of intelligence sharing to to what extent and how important is that that the the Pentagon is is helping Ukraine when it comes to uh, intelligence in the battlefield? Well, there's uh, a lot of open source reporting right now uh, over the fact that the United States and its intelligence uh, operations have been able to uh, assist um, uh, the Ukrainians in not just the uh, the assault that they've now made on the Russian forces, but also in the planning of that. In other words, all this has been you know sort of being worked on for quite some time, yeah. and the fact that our intelligence uh, assets have been used to help them facilitate the right targets, the right you know place and time to strike. Uh, I think is fantastic. I mean, you know, this is a this may be one of the undersung heroes of our cooperation with them, not just the armaments, because you're right. You know, there's a limit to what you can do with those. Uh, But uh, our intelligence community seems to have been really rising to the occasion. And by the way, have been right about Vladimir Putin all along. I hate to say everybody was wrong. They were right. They said he was going to attack. They said he was going to, you know, roll those tanks across the border when nobody else seemed to think they would. So kudos to them. I I would say Vladimir Putin is probably the greatest gift that keeps on giving to the Ukrainians, because in this assault, they are collecting thousands of rounds of ammunition that work perfectly well with their Soviet style weapons. And so, you know, even in retreat, Vladimir Putin is actually helping Ukrainians along the way.
Well, I, God knows they can use that as well, uh, Jeannie. In terms of our intelligence, you can't really advertise that. But isn't Rick right that, that this could be the real difference maker? Of course, they need the hardware, but our intelligence is worth a lot. Yeah, and, and Rick made a really important source, uh, point about the open source. I mean, one of the stunning things I think even you know us lay people can see is the way we are geo-satellite watching and tracking this huh. incredible liberation of over the last few days, 1,200 square miles. Yeah. It's surreal to watch it happen like almost looks like a video game when you watch those geo satellites. Watching a war on our phones and talking about it here on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Joe Matthew with Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. This is Sound On and this is Bloomberg. We went into the weekend here on Sound On with the headline Mansion Stirs House Democratic Backlash. Remember, 72 Democrats suggesting they're willing to shut the government down, force a shutdown if leaders go ahead with this plan to attach Joe Manchin's energy permitting bill to the spending measure that's got to pass the end of the fiscal year's September 30. This is when it always gets fun, right? You attach things to this bill knowing that it has to pass, unless, you know, you want to have a game of chicken and maybe actually shut down the government. Uh, Stanny Hoyer talked to us about, he talked to David Weston on Balance of Power, of course, the majority leader in the House. They, <laughs> This is giving some progressive Democrats indigestion. And by the sound of the majority leader, they're not all on board yet. Here he is. My expectation is the Senate will move first on the continuing resolution and we'll see how the uh, Manchin uh, agreement uh, is included in that document uh, uh, and, and take it from there. But we'll have to convince our members, yeah, yeah. Uh, if it is included, uh, that we need to pass a, a continuing resolution. We'll see. We'll have to convince our members. Interesting language. And of course, yeah, this is the CR, the continuing resolution that kicks the can and keeps uh, things funded until likely mid-December. Uh, Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins, and of course a friend of this broadcast is with us right now to kind of help us understand what we're going to do here in the next couple of weeks. Emily covers the leadership and Steny Hoyer up close and personal every day. They already know this, how this is going to go, right, Emily? This, this has to be attached because that was the deal that Chuck Schumer made with Joe Manchin, even if rank-and-file Democrats didn't know it. Yeah, it was very interesting to hear that interview between Hoyer and David Weston because Hoyer, he kind of bowed to the reality of it, that they are going to have to figure out a way to keep the government funded, a shutdown benefits, really neither party at this point, but especially yeah. not Democrats since right. they're the ones in charge. And then to, on top of that, what kind of Hoyer said there is that, you know, the concerns here are environmental with the energy permitting process. And he's like, we'd have to find a way to reassure Democrats that this is not going to be harming the environment or taking us away from our environmental goals. So he, I feel like he, like he kind of said the quiet part out loud there um, as far as what leadership is going to have to do and how they are going to be approaching uh, the dozens of members at this point who have lodged concerns about this permitting. This is going to be, however, though, that's kind of the irony, right? This bill has the biggest spending ever on climate. And this is what you had to do, Chuck Schumer, in a transactional relationship with Joe Manchin to make it happen. So um, everyone can see the writing on the wall here, it sounds like, Emily. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is, again, this is the reality of a 50-50 Senate. This is yeah. the reality of having very, very close margins in the House. Democrats, you know, they, they have a broad caucus. It's a big tent. they got to be thinking about everyone here. But, but again, got to go run. 
Yep, yep. They got to go run. They want to get out of here for for October. You know, they really, House Democrats in particular, they really only have a handful of days left, and they're trying to even give them more time. They're supposed to be here on Friday. Hoyer uh, said in a letter to them over the weekend, hey, maybe we can let you guys out on Thursday, unless, of course, (laughs) we've got one of those short-term resolutions to fund the government that's going to come up. Yeah, so that brings you through mid-December. That's what we're hearing, right? That's past the midterms. What happens to the whole budget argument after that, especially if you're in a lame duck house? Well, to a certain extent, the argument would be it would shift a little bit, depending on what the next year would look like. If Republicans yeah. knew that they were going to be controlling one or both chambers, we're probably going to see a pretty clean budget wind up going through, maybe a couple things here or there that the parties can agree on. But even if Democrats somehow wind up holding on to both chambers, something that's really not expected at this point in regards to the House could happen with the Senate. But even then, Democrats are going to need those 10 Republicans to support them on any bill that they pass. And that's really, again, going to limit their ability for trying to get any through sort of drastic uh, uh, policy or major priorities for them in this government funding bill. And, you know, normally this is kind of just the the, the way the game is played. Democrats propose some things. They kind of eke it out until the last minute and they finally get something done in the 11th hour. Spending time with Bloomberg's Emily Wilkins here on Sound On. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Other things could be attached to the spending bill, right? We've also heard about same-sex marriage. Where does that stand? So same-sex marriage is right now in the Senate. The House did pass it, and the House passed it with more than 40 Republicans voting yes. So that would pass on its own. It would be able to pass. uh, Well, the thing that they're thinking with the Senate is that if they attach it to the continuing resolution to fund the government through December, that's a must pass bill that Mm kind of gives any senators, Republican senators that might be on the line, a little tiny shove like, hey, like, you know, you want to keep the government funded. Just go ahead and vote for this one as well. Because remember, some Republicans in the House, they were kind of like, you know, we don't want to give credence to this idea that the Supreme Court is now going to overturn same sex marriage. We think that that's settled. And so you kind of see this this little bit of back and forth with a couple of Republicans on this issue in particular. The big question, Joe, do they actually have the 10 Republican votes needed? That is not clear. We've seen a number of Republican senators come out, say they would support this bill. But we are all kind of all the news organizations are running their independent whip counts. No one has gotten yeah. to a clear 10. Isn't that this something? Point. This is a classic, though, for Democrats going into midterms, right? Because obviously the Supreme Court is not about to rule on this between now and November. But to get Republicans on the record or even be able to say we couldn't make this a law because of Republicans just adds to uh, some of the ammo that Democrats at least think they have going into this election. Yeah, it absolutely does. It's a way for them to turn out their base. If, if members think that uh, if uh, constituents think that same sex marriage could potentially be at risk, get them on that's the a reason for folks to go out and vote. Absolutely. Bloomberg government's Emily Wilkins here on Bloomberg. The last one for you is this potential rail strike. Steny Hoyer seems to believe there's a legislative answer. Uh, or is, is there that much unity on Capitol Hill to break or end or block a major labor strike like that? That is a really good question. And I think the answer, it, that's not, it's not so sure. There's really no guarantee whether or not Congress would able be able to drive through a legislative solution. With what solution we've seen over the last year, boy, it would be incredible, wouldn't it? It would be really hard. It would be, remember, they'd have to do it pretty quickly, too. The yeah. deadline for talks is on Friday. And so they would have to double time it, which is just even more difficult, really. We'll let you know what Steny Hoyer said about that coming up. Great to talk to you, Emily. Thanks, as always. Emily Wilkins, Bloomberg Government Congress reporter with us on the fastest hour 
in politics. We'll reassemble the panel next and get into this issue with a rail strike. You want to talk about bad timing, supply chains, November? This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Well, you heard Charlie Pellet say it. The Biden administration is digging in now, digging into this rail strike. How did this sneak up on everyone? As Bloomberg News learns today, personal contact. They're reaching out. They're picking up the phones here, pressuring labor unions and freight rail operators to agree on a new contract before a Friday deadline. Yeah, Friday to avert a strike that risks disrupting the economy and reliving some of the worst moments of the supply chain crisis. I mean, can you imagine? You've lived this. It was called COVID. You shut down the the freight rail lines. We've got trouble here. Now, just so you understand, 10 of 12 railroad workers unions have struck new labor deals. There are two holdouts. That's what this story is about. The Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen and the International Association of Sheet, Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers. They together, these two, account for more than 90,000 rail employees. You can't have a railroad industry without them, even though we're down to two. Marty Walsh was on the phone last night. We understand a work stoppage would be bad news. Think about the timing of a government shutdown. How about this? Food shipments would be impacted right in the middle of this issue uh, with food supplies. Uh, Stanny Hoyer talking about it today. The, the question is, is there a legislative solution? Congress does have some power here. As he says, there is a role that Congress can play, and the industry groups are, are pressing lawmakers to intervene here, even as the, the administration tries to do this. Majority Leader Hoyer today on Bloomberg TV and radio. Here he is. There is a role for Congress if, in fact, uh, the, they fail to reach an agreement or, or, and fail to reach an agreement, even if they haven't reached a full agreement, if they fail to reach uh, an understanding that they're going to continue to work and that there won't be a strike. Obviously, a railroad strike at this point in time would be uh, extraordinarily detrimental to our economy and to the American people. And uh, we want to avoid that. The idea here is that Congress would intervene to prevent the strike which has happened before. There is a history here. Now, the unions uh, are urging lawmakers to stay out of it. But we, as I mentioned, have seen this a couple of times in the past, and maybe we do this all over again. But my goodness, we can't agree on anything. We're going to get this done now. Rick and Jeannie, I'm sure, have some thoughts on this. Our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, this is a tough line to walk here, uh, Jeannie. If you're in the White House, the unions are telling you to stay out of it, keep the lawmakers out of it. But this is not something that the administration can afford, is it? It is not. And it's not something the U.S. economy can afford at this point. I mean, you know, just listening to your report, it's just, you know, I can imagine how much it brings shudders to Joe Biden's mind to imagine mm -hmm. something like this going on after the U.S. economy struggling to come back out of COVID and all the supply chain issues we've had. He's seen, you know, a little bit of faint, bright light in terms of energy prices. You know, he's been working so hard on infrastructure, something like this. This is something we haven't seen in 30 
years, it's yeah. about 30% of you know, 30% of rail would be impacted. I mean, these are big, big impacts on the economy. So I'm sure that the unions would like lawmakers to stay out of it. But as you just said, Marty Walsh, the White House, they are all mm-hmm. actively involved in trying to avert this um, because the U.S. economy simply can't handle this at this point. And let's not forget, Democrats in particular in Congress, but Republicans as well, they don't want to see this either. So I think if they don't reach a deal or at least agree to continue talking, then we may see some attempt at action in Congress. Rick, um, I don't know where the authority comes from, but everyone remembers Ronald Reagan with the with the uh, uh, the air traffic controllers. This is supposed to be self-proclaimed the most union friendly administration in history. How does Joe Biden get out of that and fix this at the same time? Well, I, I think this is the irony. I, I think we've got this whole conversation in reverse. I mean, Joe Biden is Mr. Union. Almost yeah. every one of the bills that have passed Congress with Democratic majorities only uh, and signed by the president of the United States, Mr. Union, have been the promotion of new union jobs, the creation of new union opportunities. I mean, whether it's in the EV business or anything else. And and so are you telling me that Joe Biden, who has saddled the U.S. taxpayers with trillions of dollars of subsidy for unions, can now not call the unions and say, go back to work? I mean, look, I get it. I mean, I think that the rail system has been the one thing that we've been able to rely upon um, in 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 this country for attempting to get our supply chain back together. And I know they've been under enormous pressure, but for heaven's sakes, Joe, we gave the airlines $50 billion to cushion the COVID impact of them. And nothing works right in airlines anymore. So so is that the move, Rick? Could he still be the most labor friendly administration and also pick up the phone and, and maybe get some political points by saying, no, no, you're going to stay on the job. You're not allowed to strike. Well, I don't think he can ever say you're not allowed to strike, although you could probably invoke some presidential authority to do it. But like if he puts his promoter on this as the president of the United States, what union is going to say no to him? I mean, I just don't understand why the White House isn't the first voice on this, not the last voice. Is there uh, is there a path there, Jeannie? I mean, you were talking a minute ago about a legislative solution. How about a White House solution? Can he do a Ronald Reagan and say, if you don't show up for work tomorrow, you're fired? Yeah, yeah, it, it, that'd be very difficult. I mean, this isn't a government job, I realize. It's really not a fair comparison, I guess. Yeah, but, you know, the the problem for the White House is, you know, twofold. You know, the we're, you know, what, eight weeks out of a midterm election. Obviously, this is, to Rick's point, a president and, quite frankly, a party who have been committed to revitalizing unions in this country. He would have to take the step of, you know, some, some you know, step of, of forcing them back to the table, of forcing them to continue working. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine how that would happen. Mm-hmm. And by the same token, he can't afford to allow the economy to be disrupted in this way. So it's almost a case of which is worse. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's why I think they are trying desperately at this point to do this, you know, through the presidential commission, to do this in a way that they can talk to the unions and avoid this kind of issue. But time is running out. And Emily mentioned this. We're looking at a Friday deadline if they don't get this going. 
or at least uh, to Steny Hoyer's point, agree that the talks will continue. And so the president is in a really tough position here. Joe Biden was not talking about this today, uh, however, Rick, and he was actually talking infrastructure at Logan Airport, went up to Boston to talk instead about the cancer moonshot, which is something that has, you know, swirled around Joe Biden since 2016 when Barack Obama uh, assigned him with this project. And he went up there to uh, to talk about his choice to lead a new government agency focused on biomedical research and, and sort of double down on the cancer moonshot. Here he is from earlier today in Boston. I give you my word as a Biden, this cancer moonshot is one of the reasons why I ran for president. That is also true. It was a frequent part of his stump speech in 2020. Rick, is that the kind of promise that the president should be making on top of everything else right now? Yeah, I think that uh, I'm really impressed that the president thinks big, right? I mean, and and just like uh, JFK uh, wanted a moonshot to the to to the moon, uh, uh, this president is willing to dedicate resources to the federal government uh, to try and conquer cancer. And there's not a family in America or around the world who hasn't been touched by this disease. And um, I, you know, we have the greatest technological minds in history. Uh, who, if assembled under the right circumstances, I have absolutely no doubt, uh, can, 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 can dispatch cancer from our lives. Uh, cancer sucks, and I think he's doing the right thing. And I think this is the kind of thing that Americans and others around the world will look at him and say, what a good use of a presidency. It wasn't a coincidence that this speech was delivered today. This actually coincides, of course, with the anniversary, big round number, the anniversary of JFK's moonshot speech, not the one that he did at the State of the Union, but at Rice University, 1962. And that's why Joe Biden today delivered the speech at the JFK Library in Boston. And so we thought we'd go back to that moment in time, just for a little background and perspective that you would, of course, only get here on the fastest hour in politics. We go back to 1962 and John Kennedy. Why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why 35 years ago fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.